Hello, welcome to The Deduction, a podcast from the Tax Foundation, your guide to the complex world of tax and economics. My name is Scott Hodge. I'm president of the Tax Foundation, and I'll be your host for this episode. Today, we're going to look at the congressional budget reconciliation process. Holy cow. Besides being a mouthful and an inside baseball term of art, what is reconciliation? How does it work? And what role will politics play in it for Congress, as well as President Biden's policy agenda? To help us understand reconciliation, I'm joined by a longtime friend of ours and one of the smartest policy minds I know, Rohit Kumar. Rohit is principal and leader of PwC's Washington National Tax Services Tax Policy Services Group here in Washington, D.C. Prior to joining PwC, Rohit worked on Capitol Hill for many years, including 11 years with Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell for whom he serves as Domestic Policy Director and Deputy Chief of Staff. Welcome, Rohit. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. Well, uh, well, how you doing? Uh, You know, I thought uh, the Congressional Budget Reconciliation Process was uh, a mouthful, but your title is a mouthful. Principal and Leader of PwC's Washington National Tax Tax Policy Services Group. How do you fit all that on a business card? Uh, you know, these days we don't really use printed business cards anymore. So it just <laughs> shows up in my email signature. <laughs> well, how is COVID? Uh, how are you handling the the whole pandemic? Um, because, you know, your job is is information. It's it's being able to talk to members of Congress and staff and and uh, staying in touch with them to understand what the process is like. How challenging has that been during the uh, pandemic shutdown? You know, it's been a little challenging, to be sure, because there's not the, um, hey, I'm in the Capitol for a meeting and you just, you know, wander up to your old office and have a conversation, kind of see what people are doing or just get stopped in the hallway by a senator who recognizes you. So you don't get that. But even, you know, pre-COVID, a lot of the interaction was by phone or email or increasingly these days text. Um, And so what I think we've discovered is, Having had having strong relationships going into the pandemic was really important. Like, you know, did you know how to reach the staffer when they weren't sitting at their desk? You know, were these people that we were legitimately friends with that you knew how to contact in other ways? You know, those that have those sorts of relationships, I think, have managed to do okay. But you know, admittedly, it would be hard to forge that kind of relationship anew in the middle of the pandemic. And so I mean, that's certainly how we've been approaching it. But to be clear, you know, the novelty of working from home and doing it all remotely, that that wore off ages ago. And I, I imagine, like many others, I'm excited for the day when we can return to some, you know, some, if not the exact way that we used to do things, something closer uh, to that. But it, it does feel like, especially for the Hill and the Capitol in particular, the usual, like being able to walk in, you know, with an appointment and just kind of walk the halls. It feels like we're still a little ways off from that. Well, you've got a great team uh, that you work with, folks, all former colleagues uh, in the House and Senate, whether it's Janice Mays, who used to be the staff director of the House Ways and Means Committee. You've got Mark Prater, um, Todd Metcalf, of course, fer- uh, former uh, Ways and Means Chairman. Dave Camp, that's that's quite an all-star lineup. No, yeah, we are we are lucky and blessed to have an A team on both sides of the aisle, both chambers, and so we've got you know we we've managed to cover all our bases, and that has proved to be particularly useful um, in this pandemic because those are all people, whether Mark or Chairman Camp or Todd or Janice, who have really deep, long-standing relationships, and often, frankly, are as often as not are contacted by folks on the Hill for advice and input on. You know, remind me why we do it this way, or why did you do it that way? What was the precedent here? Um, you know, some even the topics we're talking about today, like budget reconciliation. You know, Mark Prater has been a part of every budget reconciliation bill, you know, going on two decades, and the institutional memory that he brings to the equation is is really quite impressive. And 
you know, just not a lot of people have written dozens of reconciliation bills. I happen to have been involved in a fair share of myself, but it's a, you know, it's a really, I mean, talk about inside baseball, Scott, this is like, you know, inside, inside baseball. There's just a narrow population of people that have actually opened up and read the 1974 Congressional Budget Act, but that's where all this emanates from. Uh, I admit that I have not read the 74 Budget Act. I know, I know. Uh, shame on me for being <laughs> in Washington that long, but I haven't. Hey, you know, I saw you on uh, PwC's Policy on Demand. Tell me about that. That was a really good ex- episode. Very, very timely. Very interesting. Is this a routine and regular thing that you or the team do uh, there at PwC? It is. Yeah. So every week we're producing episodes of a show. Um, we used to call it Inside Tax Policy. It's now broader than that. It's now Policy on Demand. And it's a, it's our own little like streaming service um, for clients of the firm. There is a public facing version that's available um, on our YouTube page um, where we do like a, a week in review. We talk about, you know, here's what was really hot this week and here's what I'm looking for next week. But we do a a much deeper dive. Uh, you know, these are like five to ten minute episodes, fifteen at most. We acknowledge attention spans are what they are, where we kind of dig into current tax policy issues. And you can well imagine, Scott, we spent some time talking about reconciliation, given the you know heightened interest in this arcane process. Yeah, I must have seen the one on on uh, on, on YouTube, and it was really good. And even though it was what uh, two minutes long, I think, but it was a great deep dive. And um, I think uh, it's the kind of thing I'm going to start looking for on a routine and regular basis. We encourage your subscription. <laughs> well, too bad I'm not a client. I, I I get the long version. Oh no, but, but you can uh, subscribe to the YouTube page, right? And then you'll get right. every time there's a new episode, you'll be uh, you know it'll alert you as to the, this breaking development. Excellent. Yeah, it'll make me a whole lot smarter. Uh, well. This episode, obviously, of, of uh, the deduction is very, very timely. My goodness, we got some sea changes in the last week or two uh, in politics and tax policy. Uh, we've got a 50-50 Senate with uh, now, of course, with the uh, Vice President uh, Harris as being the tie-breaking vote there. Democrats are controlling the House. President Biden has outlined a, uh, an extensive agenda, both rescue and recovery. And we'll get to that in a second because that, I think, is going to be a real nice case study for talking about reconciliation. And I'll, I'll admit, um, in, in addition to not reading the 74 Budget Act, <laughs> I, I've been in think tanks for the last 35 years. And so, yeah, reconciliation is something I kind of know about, but I don't really know about. It. And so I kind of consider myself somewhat of a layman. So if, if you could help us start with the, the very basics of reconciliation, what is it and why is it used? Yeah, so the basics of reconciliation, if you go back to the original purpose of the budget reconciliation process, it was actually uh, pretty narrowly limited for deficit reduction, right? Leaders acknowledge that spending reduction or deficit reduction, whether it's spending reduction or raising taxes, is politically challenging and getting a supermajority for those policies, you know, would be challenge would be difficult on an in a durable kind of way. And so this was a process that allowed for certain tax policy changes and certain spending policy changes um, to be enacted or to be, be able to pass the both chambers, but particularly the Senate with a simple majority vote, with all sorts of not only to be able to pass with a simple majority vote, but that if you had a simple majority, you would be able to get across the finish line. There wouldn't be undue delay. There are pretty strict time limits on the number of time of debate. Um, There are limitations on amendments. They have to be germane to the underlying measure. You can't just show up with something completely unrelated to try to follow up the works. Um, So that's the basic the basic structure. Over the years, uh, as it has, of course, evolved um, and has, as of 2001, Republicans pioneered the use of using the budget reconciliation process to cut taxes. But because the basic underlying architecture is one that is geared towards deficit reduction, the way that it has evolved 
Um, and this will be important. This was important not only for Republicans cutting taxes. It will also potentially be important for President Biden and his uh, COVID relief measures. The process does allow you or allows Congress to increase the deficit temporarily. For the duration of the budget window is the official term. The budget window is not defined. It's not required to be of any particular length. It used to be five-year budgets were pretty common. More recently, recently we've been doing 10-year budgets, but there was nothing in the underlying structure of the act, of the Congressional Budget Act, that would prevent a Congress from adopting a 15-year budget or a 20-year budget or a 100-year budget, right? I mean, there's just no... It it simply becomes a question of what do you have the votes for, right? This is all simple majority process. So if you have 51 votes for a 10 million year budget, God bless, you know, you can write a 10 million year budget. Now question the, you know, the relevance of the estimates at year 9 million, but nevertheless, there is no, at least in the underlying statute, no restriction. Now, in order to have a reconciliation bill, right, this is the vehicle that is protected from a filibuster. um, You first have to have a budget resolution, right? A budget resolution is, think of it as like a budget blueprint document that sets forth overall spending levels, and overall revenue levels, like targets for spending, targets for um, revenue collection. The budget resolution itself, if you actually were to read one, and I don't know that I would recommend it, it's just a bunch of numbers. It's a budget function and then a number. And unless you are conversant in budget functions and you know what the baseline number is, none of it will make any sense to you. Um, you'd, you'd be welcome to read it. And yeah, I would be shocked if... Um, more than 10 people on the planet could read it and know intuitively what it meant without you know, cross-referencing every budget function and number in there. But both the House and the Senate have to pass a budget resolution. And then assuming that they are not identical to one another, they have to you know, reach a conference agreement, a, a unified uh, conference report on the budget resolution. And then they each have, each have to pass that conference report. Embedded in that budget resolution, not every year, but not infrequently, especially when you have unified control, are reconciliation instructions. And these are literally instructions to the various, to the committees that are instructed, right? It can be one committee, like just the finance committee or just finance and ways and means one in each chamber, or it can be multiple committees, finance committee, energy committee, you know, health, education, labor, pensions committee. You can instruct as many committees as you choose. Again, assuming you have the votes um, and each committee is instructed, hey, your instruction committee is to design a set of policies that reduce the deficit by X billion dollars, right? That's it. That's the instruction. You have total flexibility as the committee, the authorizing committee to decide how you're going to hit that number. Now, often as you're putting the budget resolution together, there are certain assumptions that are made. You have, you know, the budget committee chairman will have had conversations with the chairman of the authorizing committee. So they'll know, okay, I'm going to give you a number. You know, do you have some sense of how you're going to get there? So often a lot of this is informally pre-cooked between the budget committee and the authorizing committee. So the authorizing committees don't just wake up one day and say, whoa, I got to reduce the budget deficit by, you know, $50 billion. Holy mackerel, how am I going to do that? Right. So they they sort of know how they're going to get there before they get their number assigned. And then the committees that have been assigned a reconciliation structure, let's just go with a simple version, just one committee and each chamber has been assigned. So for our purposes, you know, finance committee and ways and means, which are the two tax writing committees in the uh, Senate and House Um, respectively, they're given a number target. They write a piece of legislation that hits that target. They have to report that out, right? And that that means you got to get an outright majority to report the bill out. That will become more challenging, perhaps, in a 50-50 Senate where you have likely equal representation on the committees of Democrats and Republicans. But they've got to report that out. If it's just one committee in each chamber that has received a reconciliation instruction, they report that bill directly to the Senate floor. Um, If multiple committees have been instructed, so let's say the Finance Committee and 
the uh, Health Education Labor Pensions Committee help. If more than one committee has been instructed, they then report their legislation to the Budget Committee. And the Budget Committee simply engages in the ministerial task of stitching together the multiple piece of legislation that have been reported to them, and they report that out to the floor. So it's just a it's a ministerial process where it becomes more than ministerial is if a committee defaults on its obligation to report legislation, and there's typically a deadline, right? If a committee fails to report, the budget committee can, um, at that point, usurp their authority and write the legislation for them. That doesn't typically happen. Because as I said, the budget committee, it's often coordinating with the authorizing committees. But it is in the rules that if a committee you know, falls down on its obligation, that doesn't stop the process. So you think about, we haven't seen this recently, but in a hypothetical world where you've got, uh, you know, a really recalcitrant chairman who's just not on board with what the rest of the caucus wants to do and refuses to hold a markup, like says, I, I'm just not doing this. I'm not interested, you know, go away, right? That, that the, the way that the rules work, it does not empower a recalcitrant or persnickety chairman or chairwoman from stopping the process, the budget committee can then step in and say, okay, you've defaulted on your obligation. We will step in and, and do this for you. But eventually, assuming all ducks in a row, that reconciliation legislation is then reported to the Senate floor. It has to be tested to make sure that it hits the number that's measured by the Congressional Budget Office in coordination with the com- uh, Joint Tax on Committee, uh, not Joint Tax, Joint, uh, Joint Tax Committee, sorry. Um, <laughs> so JCT, uh, Joint Committee on Tax is the official term. So they, they coordinate, make sure that you've hit the numbers. But then Scott, there are a whole host of other tests that the bill has to pass, all sort of cl- you know generally and collectively referred to as Bird Rule points of order, named after uh, yes. uh, Robert C. Bird, right. uh, former senator from uh, West Virginia, and I think w- one of the original authors of the Congressional Budget Act back in um, 1974. Uh, because remember, this process is fundamentally about you know changing the deficit typically reducing the deficit although again during dependency of the budget window you can increase the deficit um, by whatever numbers you have the votes for but that means even in this sort of modern version of reconciliation you can't try to you know bury in there policies that don't affect the budget in one way or the other increase the deficit reduce the deficit or for which the revenue consequence or deficit effect is merely incidental um, to the policy being implemented so like take for example um, I'm somebody that wants to decriminalize, you know, uh, illicit substances, right? So let's say I want to, you know, I want to deschedule marijuana, right? And make that completely legal at the federal level. Well, look, if you did that, because one of the various penalties for marijuana possession, trafficking and the like, there are financial penalties, right? There are, mm-hmm. the federal government will assess, fi- you know, fines and such. And in theory, if you decriminalized the transport of marijuana or the growing of it in industrial scale, fewer criminal sanctions, fewer trials, fewer penalties, and that would eventually increase the budget deficit because we'd be collecting less in criminal penalties from people who had previously been convicted um, of this now no longer criminal offense. Well, yes, that would eventually in some way affect the budget. But in all likelihood, the Senate parliamentarian would say, look, that budget effect is really quite incidental to the policy that's being pursued. The core policy being pursued is one of criminal justice reform, not you know increasing the deficit or decreasing the deficit. So the budget effect has to be sort of A, it has to affect the budget in the first place. And B, that budget effect has to can't be just sort of incidental mm-hmm. to the policy being pursued. Now, these are, you know, whether there's a budget effect or not, that's pretty easily measured because the Congressional Budget Office or Joint Tax Committee will 
tell you that whether that effect is incidental that's that's where things get a little murky scott right that that's is very the, much the parliamentarian has a lot of power in that kind of situation right yes yes she does now and the parliamentarian is a long you know she's been a member of the senate parliamentarian staff for a number of years she was there uh, when i was there she is a, a sort of a true nonpartisan expert i can't say enough good things about her but, you know, she will be forced to make calls and invariably someone is going to be unhappy with the decision she makes. It's just the nature, you know, of the business, you know, like an umpire calling balls and strikes. Right. You know, someone's always unhappy when it's close to the line. Someone always feels like they got the raw end of the deal. That's just the nature of the, the business. But these are the restrictions that further govern, you know, the the sort of process. And, and there is a, a process we used to call it. We still, I guess we still do uh, giving the legislation a bird bath. Right. You You examine it. For budget act points of order, bird rule right. violations, those that have no budget effect or for which the budget effect is merely incidental. Um, and these are not the all of the board act uh, bird rule points of order, but these are kind of the major ones. Then those provisions are sort of identified. And then one of two things happens. Either they are stripped from the legislation and think of it like a block of cheese that then becomes Swiss cheese with like little, you know, like rifle shot holes taken out where the offending provision is just stripped and everything else remains or the proponents of the of that you know that the offending provision um, have the right to uh, take the question to the full Senate and if they can get 60 votes to waive the point of order then the provision remains right so there is a mechanism again because with 60 votes in the Senate typically you can do anything right so there's no reason why these provisions if they can get 60 votes shouldn't be allowed to stay in the underlying legislative vehicle. It's just that they've been subject to a, a higher standard because they violate, you know, one of the points of order that typically governs um, the reconciliation process. Fascinating. Now, President Biden has um, put out two bold plans, uh, one with more detail than the other. Perhaps we can use those as a real test case or a case study for how this might work. Uh, the first one is his American Rescue Plan, which is $1.9 trillion. Uh, it includes plussing up the direct payments, which were $600, and are now going to be an additional $1,400 direct payments to individuals, increasing unemployment assistance, increasing the child tax credit to from $2,000 to $3,000, expanding the earned income tax credit, expanding the dependent care tax credit, $350 billion for state and local assistance, and a $15 minimum wage. And then he also proposed a Build Back America plan. And this is more of, I guess, a long-term proposal, uh, details forthcoming. And uh, that includes uh, increased infrastructure spending, green energy programs, all paid for presumably by tax hikes on corporations and high-income uh, taxpayers. So how does he get all of this passed or can he or what are the mechanisms that might force them to use reconciliation to get some of this through and not other? So this provides us, I think, a great case study for, for reconciliation. Yeah, no, it really does. And we may even see an early test uh, or sort of, you know, example of the reconciliation process being used, although it's possibly it will be used in the COVID context in a way that is perhaps different than we typically um, think of it. So let's go through you know, the provisions you identified, the vast majority of the tax provision, child tax credit, earned income tax credit, dependent care credit, taking the, the rebate checks from $600 to $2,000 um, or to $2,600 or any number that, you know, you choose. All of those are uh, very likely, I would be very surprised anyway, if those couldn't be done in budget reconciliation. That is straightforward 
tax policy change, it would clearly increase the deficit. The increase would not be incidental to the underlying policy. In fact, the express purpose of many of these proposals is to provide stimulus to the economy, to you know, uh, taxpayers that have been adversely affected by the pandemic and the res- resulting uh, shutdowns. So that is all kind of you know right down the middle of the fairway, kind of reconciliation eligible tax policy changes. Interestingly, many of these changes, at least as proposed today, are temporary. Right? These are one-time measures. These are not permanent changes in policy. And so remember, I said the budget reconciliation process allows Congress, with a simple majority vote in the House and the Senate, to increase the budget deficit by as many trillions of dollars as they have the votes for, for the period of the budget window. And let's just sort of stipulate for today's purposes that the budget window will remain 10 years, although, as I noted, in theory, it could be made longer. But for the purposes of this conversation, it need not be longer than 10 years. These sort of temporary policies, temporary expansion of child tax credit, EITC, dependent care credit, and the like, as one-time policy measures would increase the deficit. But that deficit increase would be well limited inside the 10-year window. In fact, most of that deficit effect would be in the first two or three years at most. There might be a little bit of a tail in some of these, but that tail is not going to drag out past year nine, uh, year 10, and into year 11. And so it is possible that uh, a determined majority could use the reconciliation process to enact a bunch of one-time spending or tax cut measures that increase the deficit so long as that deficit effect is limited to the first 10 years, right? And they wouldn't have to raise taxes to pay for it or cut other spending to pay for it. It could be deficit increasing, you know, in the first four or five years. And then in the natural course, if those provisions expire, right, which is what the estimators will assume because that's the way the policy is written, the deficit effect will taper out to zero. And by the time you get to year 10 and year 11, you've got zero deficit effect. Now, importantly, the reconciliation process does not account for net interest cost on the debt. So while there would be some legitimate long-term increase in the deficit because of interest, uh, you know, higher interest expense, that is not by convention just not accounted for. We wouldn't expect that to change. Much like the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was made quote temporary, and and all uh, all the individual provisions expire after 2025. This would be a similar kind of mechanism where exactly. you have a bunch of one-year th- uh, policies that then whoop, then they disappear on year nine, and you don't have to pay for them. Right. It, it, no, no need to come up with offsetting revenue collections or offsetting spending reductions. So all those tax policy changes are eligible, eligible for reconciliation. And as long as they remain temporary or really the, the true test is as long as their deficit effect doesn't cross from year 10 into the year 11 and beyond window, you need not offset the cost, whether it's other tax increases or other spending reduction. So those are eligible for reconciliation and perhaps in a way that wouldn't require offsets. Now, state and local. That's not tax policy. That's spending policy. And typically is done through the Appropriations Committee, through a discretionary appropriations process. Discretionary appropriations actually can't be done through budget reconciliation. But there's, Uh I think, a pretty straightforward workaround, which is to turn it into a one-time mandatory spending program rather than a discretionary program. And if you think about if you really want to get $350 billion, whatever the number is, of assistance to state and local governments... There are any number of ways in which the federal government could do that, right? States have an obligation under the Medicaid program to match federal spending. You could, you know, and Medicaid is a mandatory program, right? You could relieve the one-time match, right? There are any, and I mean, I, I can think of dozens of creative ways in which to get money to state and local governments by relieving some of their other obligations that are on the mandatory side of the house. Money, of course, is fungible. That which they're not putting into Medicaid would then be freed up to 
you know, pay for other things or, you know, just to cover the loss of revenue from the pandemic. Yeah. That's interesting. So I think that is, um, there are workarounds available and I wouldn't be surprised if they are, you know, uh, th- th- if those don't materialize at some minimum wage increases in a different category to me, because a minimum wage increase does not, you know, we're talking about the minimum wage that the state's right, impose upon the employers in their various jurisdictions, that is not going to have a direct um, revenue effect for the federal government. It's not going to increase or reduce the deficit directly. Any, and there might be some sort of very tangential effect on federal spending, but it is clear to me that under the precedents as they exist today, that would be deemed to be extraneous, right? Because it's not the, whatever deficit effect increase or, or decrease is tangential to the policy of just increasing the federal minimum wage. So this yeah, one, so theory, theory, theoretically, you could make the case that, oh, well, if people have to pay higher minimum wage, they'll pay higher income taxes, exactly. payroll taxes, or, you know, that'll reduce the burden on unemployment or something like that, right? Yeah. And you could also make the contrary argument that, oh, well, this will make it harder for struggling small businesses who you know, want to get back on their labor costs go up. Some of them won't survive and you'll get less taxes from them because if they end up folding, Right. They, they're no longer taxpayers. But I mean, so there are arguments on both sides, but they are clearly incidental mm-hmm. to the underlying policy, which is just to increase the federal floor for the, the minimum wage. Um, so that would require either. And so there are two ways forward here. Um, one is to get 60 votes to waive the point of order. Right. And if you had 60 votes, then you wouldn't have to do it in reconciliation, but you could include it again with 60 votes. You can do just about anything. That'd be um, pretty tough to do right now, though. Which I, 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 yeah, I think we can stipulate that getting 60 for that would seems like would be challenging in the current political environment, but it's not been tested in a while. So, you know, any, you know, in, in these days, you know, I'm, I'm loath to say anything is zero percent because we're living in such unprecedented times. But it seems highly improbable to me, to be clear. The other option, of course, is the majority can overrule the parliamentarian. So somebody says, look, I think the parliamentarian got it wrong. And you could overrule the parliamentarian with 51 votes. Now, this would be effectively eroding, if not erasing the filibuster. So it takes on a much bigger consequence than just do you like a minimum wage increase or do you not? Because if a minimum wage increase is eligible for reconciliation, then you've basically, and you've basically said, yeah, you know, the, the effect is so incidental, but I don't care. I think it still counts. Well, then, you know, I could probably dump in tons of policy choices that have some very incidental effect on the budget. And say, well, you know, citing this minimum wage precedent, I can do this in reconciliation too. So I would be a little bit surprised if there was a, you know, override of a ruling on minimum wage. I'd actually be surprised if it was even attempted because it's so clearly out of bounds in a reconciliation bill. Um, and you know, maybe you put it in so that you have, you have the vote on the point of order. You can show who's for a minimum wage increase and who's not. It doesn't get sixty. It falls, but you've taken a political vote. I mean, I can see why. You know, someone might want to go down that path. I would be very surprised, especially given this, the public statements of some Democratic senators about protecting the filibuster that, you know, you would backdoor erase the filibuster through a parliamentarian override vote, you know, which is something that senators have said they wouldn't be willing to do kind of overtly just erasing the filibuster kind of generically across the board. So reconciliation is really for the majority, which can't get 60 votes to be able to pass what they want. What role is there for the minority? Can they, you know, uh, can, do they have any role in this or do they have any power? Can they mess up reconciliation or they just um, have to watch it happen? You know, if the if the proponents and usually the majority and for reconciliation purposes has 51 votes, they will get to the finish line. 
The minority yeah. cannot stop them. What the minority can do is under the reconciliation rules, they have an un- unlimited right to offer amendments on the, at least on the Senate floor. And so this, this often at the end of the process and, and the whole process is time limited. So once you reach the end of the 20 hours of debate uh, on a reconciliation bill, you can have, you can still offer amendments. You get no debate time unless you get unanimous agreement for debate time, but you can have as many amendments voted on as senators care to offer. And this triggers what we colloquially refer to as a voterama, right? <laughs> amendments are offered and voted on immediately, sometimes with one minute of debate on each side, sometimes with no debate um, at all. And so what the minority can do is, you know, uh, design as many clever, politically painful, challenging amendments as they can design to, you know, kind of put the majority on its heels try to get some of these amendments adopted. But really, it's more an exercise in maximum political pain than it is in I'm really going to take this legislation down or somehow block it from happening. Look, the majority has been overriding the minority with the reconciliation process for decades. If there were a way for the minority to stop a reconciliation bill from happening, Republicans would have done it with respect to the Affordable Care Act in 2009 and 2010. Democrats would have done it you know, with the Bush tax cuts in 2001 or 2003, or certainly with the Trump tax cuts in 2017. Like these were all fairly partisan pieces of legislation. And I, I participated not in the Trump ones, but the, the all the ones prior. I can tell you, we looked under every rock. We picked up every stick. You know, if the majority is determined, the majority will get there. And that's just the nature of the, the process. And, and look, that's how it was designed, right? It, this is not by accident. This was explicit congressional design in 1974 to let a determined majority take a reconciliation bill across the finish line, assuming that they've got, you know, 51 votes for the proposition or an outright majority with 51 and a, you know, hundred vote Senate. Well, let's, uh, let, we'll close out on, on uh, President Biden's um, second initiative, and that's the Build Back America plan, I think he called it, uh, which includes yeah. a lot of infrastructure spending. Now, there's no details. So, uh, you know, we, we have to be a little careful, but Infrastructure spending, green energy programs, all paid for by tax hikes and corporations and high, ind- high uh, net worth individuals. Can you foresee some of those programs uh, getting stuck into reconciliation or is it, you know, things like infrastructure in particular? I mean, that's that's appropriations. That's, you know, uh, concrete and steel and so forth. Uh, can you can you stuff that into a reconciliation bill? You could certainly do some of it, right? And this is assuming that this is permanent increase in federal spending. Then you would need, if you're going to use the reconciliation process, some offsetting, you know, either revenue collection or other spending reduction because higher gas it, tax, for instance, or right? Something. Higher gas tax, for example, carbon taxes, right? I mean, there's any number of ways in which you could decide to fund you know, in increased infrastructure investment um, in the United States with tax policy changes that increase revenue collection. Um, And you could change some of this infrastructure spending, you know, into sort of a mandatory program. I mean, again, there's endless creativity. I think typically the obstacle on infrastructure has been how do we finance it? If you're using the reconciliation process and you got 51 votes for enhanced revenue sources for um, infrastructure, then, you know, you can find a way to do the spending. I, I don't think that would necessarily be an obstacle. And again, if it were permanent increases in spending, then it would require, you know, some offsets. Um, if, if it was a one-time burst of revenue or burst of spending, you know, a couple of years, three, four highway bills are typically five-year bills. Then again, you might be able to do it in reconciliation and not have to, you know, come up with a, a new revenue sources. You could use the existing gas tax collections. There's a gap between what that collects and what we want to spend on infrastructure and what we want to spend, I would say, on an, a bipartisan basis. And you could just gap fill the, the delta um, with deficit spending. And again, as long as that deficit effect doesn't hit outside the budget window, typically 10 years, then there's not 
on the face of it, a need to pay for that. Now that's under the rules. There may be a political need to pay for it. There may be a policy preference to pay for it. Those are all separate calculations. I'm just talking about what the rules would allow, what the rules would compel members to do or or wouldn't require them to do. And raising, uh, we'll close on this, uh, raising corporate corporate taxes and individual taxes, essentially repealing a lot of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act would be a no-brainer under reconciliation, right? It would. The only thing that uh, President-elect, President-elect as of today, Biden, has proposed that I don't think to be done in the reconciliation process is to increase the Social Security payroll tax liability, oh, uh, imposing the full 12.4% on incomes above $400,000. And that's because there's a very specific point of order um, in the 1974 Act that says you can't make changes to the Social Security program. And so that one, to me, is probably of all the Biden proposals on the revenue side, is probably the only one that strikes me as being, you know, not eligible for inclusion in the reconciliation process. Again, this would be subject to a point of order. It would be subject to a ruling of the Senate parliamentarian. But based on my experience, and I have some experience with this point of order in particular, I would be very surprised if the parliamentarian blessed imposing the Social Security tax as a payroll tax deposited into the OAS, OASDI trust funds um, as a something that you could do in reconciliation. Outside of reconciliation with 60 votes, for sure. There are, of course, other ways to raise taxes on upper income individuals. You can just increase marginal rates by as, you know, as much as you have the votes for, yeah. right? So, and as we know, Scott, like the trust fund is an accounting fiction that the federal government maintains. Right. Uh, whether the money is deposited into the general fund or into the trust fund, it's all really the same pot of money. And in due course, we will be funding Social Security out of the, the general fund kind of one way or the other. So it, it almost matters not how you describe it. Um, if there are 51 votes to increase taxes on upper income individuals, then those policies can be carried into law. Right, Rohit, thank you so much. This has really been fascinating. A great primer, I think, for both me and hopefully our audience on reconciliation. And uh, it's going to be a fascinating year to watch on the policy and tax front. So thank you for, for joining me. And uh, I encourage everyone to tune in. Uh, look on YouTube for PwC's Policy on Demand. It is a very, very interesting and um, very timely little video series that PwC is doing. So I encourage you to see that. And uh, thank you all for tuning into the deduction. We'll be back again soon for another interesting dive into the world of tax policy. Be safe. Thank you very much. And that wraps up this episode of The Deduction. We'd love to hear what you think about this podcast. Please let us know at taxfoundation.org slash podcast.